I had just parked my car at the airport and was grabbing my bags when I realized I had left home without my wallet, without any money, without any credit cards. I'm getting ready to go through security without my driver's license. And there wasn't enough time for me to drive home and make it back in time for my flight. So what did I do? I did what any reasonable and calm person would do in a moment like this. I panicked. And after a few moments to collect myself, I remembered a couple important things. First, that I was living in the 21st century and I could tap to pay for many things using just my smartphone. And I also remembered that I had I had been on an international trip about a, a month beforehand and had left my passport in my carry-on bag. I was no longer without identification to make it through security. I had money to be able to buy things on my trip. I was so relieved. Leaving home without something we need is the worst. It could mean we're locked out of the house. It could mean that we waste our time. It might mean that we're not able to get to where we're trying to go. It's so frustrating. And how many things just aren't the same without another? The Broncos without an elite quarterback, they're not as much fun. The entire internet is hoping that Tiger Woods tees off at the Masters because the Masters without Tiger just lacks the same kind of luster. A, a beach vacation without the sun, it's disappointing. Or when we find out on a Friday afternoon that we're without a job. Or if we're now learning how to live life without a loved one. Calvary Online without you just isn't the same. I'm so glad you're with us for Calvary Online. I'm John. We've made it to the end of chapter two in our Mark It Up series through the New Testament book of James. So open your journal or your Bible with me to James chapter two, verse 14. James chapter two, verse 14. All right, spoiler alert. Before we even read our text, here is the bottom line of the verses we're gonna look at together today. Faith without works is dead. Just like so many other things that are less than they should be when they lack a key ingredient or miss an important person, faith without some kind of visible, tangible action is so much less than what it's meant to be that James says it's as good as dead. He makes his point by opening with this question in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Can that kind of faith, one without works, save a person? That's an important question. We live in a world that is confused about what faith really is. I mean, we call all sorts of different kinds of belief systems faith communities. Our culture tells people they can have faith in themselves. Faith in our day is nothing more than an abstract idea that means many different things to different people. But James 
is getting at the biblical idea of faith, which is not simply a set of beliefs, not some kind of self-realization, and is not open to individual interpretation. This kind of faith is the one and only kind of faith that saves, that allows you to spend eternity with your creator, that is God's gift to a broken world. And it means that we trust in God's son, Jesus, that we believe what he says and we listen to what he calls us to do. Faith that saves is first and foremost in the person of Jesus Christ. And it is a gift that is given to us by the power of God. It can't be earned. It isn't something that we deserve. And real, true faith is saving faith. And the question that James asks here is, can someone have real, true, saving faith, but not do any kind of good in the world, not help other people, not have any kind of visible, tangible action that results from their faith? Can we just accept the gift of faith from God and then live our lives like nothing's changed? Of course not. And the way that James makes this point in these verses is by comparing two contrasting kinds of faith. One is the kind of faith that doesn't have any works at all. No visible result of faith. It's a lifeless faith. It's dead, according to James. The other kind of faith so overflows with what has been given that it produces all kinds of good works, all kinds of responses to God and to others. It's not a lifeless faith, but instead a living faith. Each kind of faith, the lifeless faith and the living faith, has two examples to help us understand the bottom line that faith without works is dead. His first example is one of lifeless faith. Check out verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? What good is it if we ignore the needs of others? If we see people who are a part of the family of God, did you notice that James calls them brothers and sisters? And if they're poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, what good is it if we ignore their physical needs? Lifeless faith neglects the needs of others. And what good is that? We've been given so much by God. He has not withheld mercy and grace from us. And if we have been saved by faith through God's grace, we, of all people, needy and helpless before God, should be aware of the needs of others and do whatever we can to help. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. The love of God has overflown to us, and we are meant to overflow his love to others. Our good fortune is meant for good works. Our prosperity is meant for another's poverty. That's the story of the gospel. And James says in verse 17, so faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Neglecting 
the needs of others, is a lifeless kind of faith. It's dead. Now, works that flow from faith aren't just towards other people. Look at the next illustration James uses in verses 18 through 20. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. This is a method of argument that James uses where he has a kind of imaginary conversation with someone who disagrees with his bottom line assessment. And this imaginary person says, well, you have faith, but I have works. And James responds by saying, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith apart from your works, or I will show you my faith by my works, rather. He says, you think you can only have works without faith? We all know that's impossible. If you just do things, but don't believe anything, if you just do good in the world, but don't trust in Jesus and don't believe in God, that doesn't get you anywhere. Neither does the idea that works could earn your faith. That's also impossible. To to show you my faith by my works, James says. Works are the overflow of faith, not the other way around. And this imaginary argument continues in verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Just as the first example in verses 15 and 16 were like a lifeless faith towards other people, this example is a lifeless faith towards God. The kind of person who just believes certain facts about God, but their life isn't changed because of it. A lifeless faith lacks love for God. His example here, you believe that God is one, you do well. The idea that there is one God is the foundational belief of the Jewish people. It's fundamental to our belief that there is one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This verse was repeated daily by ancient Israelites. It was a distinctive of Jews to believe in one God, to be a monotheistic religion, It was different than every other world religion. But it isn't enough to just simply believe something. Faith is always meant to have a result in our life. An overwhelming majority of Americans say they believe in a higher power, something like 90%. A sizable majority of those people say they believe specifically in the God of the Bible. And yet... There is a significant difference between simply checking a box on a survey that says we believe something and living those beliefs day in and day out. How many people say they believe in God but don't live like it? James says even demons believe in God. They have seen his power. We see in the scriptures that they obey his commands. But do they have faith? No way. They might have intellectual knowledge about God, but that's where it ends. It's not enough that we just believe a set of facts or agree with a statement of faith. Our lives must be a reflection of our faith. You know what the next verse in Deuteronomy 6 says? Verse 5, it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. The demons may believe in God, but they don't love him. 
And any person who's just checking a box, who hasn't surrendered their whole life, their heart, their soul, their strength to God and his purposes, lacks love for him. Lifeless faith lacks love for God. And so James concludes this example, this imaginary argument by saying in verse 20, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Faith without works is useless, dead, lifeless. It neglects the needs of others and lacks love for God. But a living faith, what do you think defines that? How about the great commandment? These are the words of Jesus in Matthew 22. He said, you shall, echoing Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. A living faith is defined by a love for God and a love for others. The first example of a living faith begins in verse 21 of James chapter 2. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Abraham, a friend of God, who loved God above all else. James recaps the famous story of Abraham, the founding father of the Jewish people, who was tested by God when God asked him to sacrifice his son, his only son, Isaac. Abraham, at this point, had known God for a lifetime. He had miraculously become the father of Isaac in his old age and had believed God now for decades. Not always perfectly. Abraham made many mistakes, some of them spectacular. Experienced doubts. And like many of us, knew what it was to live through the ebbs and flows of faith. Confidence, perhaps followed by confusion. Hope that maybe leads to hesitation and success, also mixed with sadness. But in this extraordinary moment, when Abraham trusted God above all else and willingly laid his beloved son on the altar, it demonstrated visibly and tangibly that his faith was real. And God spared Isaac in a moment of grace that would foreshadow the death of the beloved one and only Son of God, Jesus. But Abraham's faith in that moment was real, living, true. Living faith loves God more than anything, more than a person, more than our possessions, more than our personal needs. Now let's talk for a moment about the way that James uses the word here in these verses, the word justified. The text says that Abraham was justified by works. Now, if we know our Bibles, and especially if we're familiar with the writings of Paul, it can seem like there's a conflict here. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. 
It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. And in Romans, he says, for by works of the law, no human being has been justified. That's Romans 3.20. And in verse 28, he says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And then in a few verses, in verse 2 of chapter 4, Paul says, for if Abraham, to use the same example as James, was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So what's the deal? Are these two sections of scripture, these two writers of the New Testament, Paul and James, are they at odds? Are their ideas about justification contradictory? How can James say that we're justified by works and Paul say that we're not? Remember that first question that James posed in chapter 2 and verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? There's no question in the mind of James that faith is what saves us. That's the idea of justification when Paul uses that word. That we are justified before God declared righteous because of the work of Jesus on the cross. That's justification in Paul's language. It saves us. Here, in James chapter 2, James is using the word justified, not about our salvation, but about our faith. You see how he says that in verse 22, that Abraham's faith was completed by his works? His faith was justified by his works, proven, shown to be authentic. I think that's what James means. And Paul would agree. Those verses in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, what comes in verse 10? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Douglas Moo, who's written a commentary on the book of James, says this. Thus, it would seem that both Paul and James are operating with an understanding of works that's basically similar. Anything done that is in obedience to God and in the service of God. The difference between Paul and James consists in the sequence of works and conversion. Paul denies any efficacy to pre-conversion works, but James is pleading for the absolute necessity of post-conversion works. Is there a disagreement? I don't think so. Both would agree. Works don't save us. Faith does. But works are the evidence of a living faith. Here's how James puts it in verse 24 of chapter 2. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. The overflow of a living faith is a life of good works, which God prepared beforehand for us that we might walk in them. So the first example of living faith is Abraham, the great patriarch, the esteemed founding father of all people of true faith. And then the next example that James gives us might be surprising. James goes from a patriarch to a prostitute in verse 25. And in the same way, was not also Rahab, the prostitute justified by works, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. This Old Testament story from Joshua chapter 2 through 6 features an unlikely heroine. 
Joshua had sent spies into the promised land, and there those spies found refuge in the house of Rahab, a Gentile woman who, despite her past, had tremendous faith. She had heard about all that God had done, all that he had promised to his people, about the land that he promised to give to them, about the ways that he had parted the Red Sea. And then in verse 11 of Joshua 2, she makes this great confession of faith. For the Lord your God, he is the God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And because of Rahab's faith in God, She hid the spies from the army of her own people, kept them safe, so that God's promise to give a land to his people would be fulfilled in her lifetime. At great personal risk to herself, she cared for the needs of strangers. She didn't neglect their needs, but instead she loved them because of her faith in God. Living faith loves others like God loves us. So generous was her love to God's people that Joshua saw to it that Rahab and her household were untouched when Jericho was destroyed. And she became a part of the people of Israel, part of the family of God woven into the fabric of their history. Her past wasn't held against her. In fact, she, Rahab, is the great-great-grandmother of King David and an ancestor of the Lord Jesus. Imagine that a prostitute who had nothing to offer, becomes a heroine of our faith. She's listed in the so-called hall of faith in Hebrews. Living faith has no prerequisites. You don't need a resume. You don't need to be a part of a certain family or come from a particular country to gain faith. It is a gift from God, freely offered to you. Have you received it? Have you received God's free gift of faith offered to you through his son, Jesus, to save you from your sins? No matter what your past has been like, God invites you to be a part of his family, to be among the people of God like Rahab, like Abraham, like so many people who have had no prerequisite, but have come to Christ in humble faith and asked for his forgiveness. If you have received it, then let's live like it. Let's love God more than anything. And let's love others like God has loved us. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, James says in verse 26, so also faith without works is dead. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for these examples of faith. We thank you for the ways that you have prepared before we have come to faith, good works for us to walk in, ways that we might spread your generous love to other people, ways that we might be able to demonstrate the faith that we have received from God to others so that they might come to a saving knowledge of Christ, for the ways that you've called us to care for others, to provide for others, to demonstrate the love of Jesus to those around us. And we thank you for the ways that you call us to live in loving obedience to you, God. I pray for my friends who are with us today. I pray you might remind them of your great love for them, that you might inspire them by the power of your word to find ways that they can put their faith into action, be true, living people of faith. 
We need the help of the Holy Spirit to do it, God. And so we ask for it. And we pray all of this in the powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen.